That's your task, in a way, is to look at this as if you are trying to help others through the biggest loss of their life. And the difficulty with that, of course, is that you are also suffering an enormous loss yourself. What happens when we lose something or someone that we love? Usually, normally, we grieve, but the extent to which we're allowed or able to depends on many things. Do other people recognise our loss? Are we processing it correctly? Are we honest with ourselves about what just happened? And what about climate change? What about the wildlife places and peoples that are going to be lost forever? What's that doing to our brains? Is it time to talk about climate grief and to give it the same space and time as we give people who've lost a loved one? This is Your Brain on Climate. I'm Dave and I've been campaigning and talking about climate change for the best part of two decades now. And there's so much I'm still learning about one of the most important causes of it all, human brains and how they work. Your Brain on Climate is a podcast about psychology and what it can teach us about climate change, how we got it and what we might do about it. This week I'm joined by Ro Randall. Ro is a psychotherapist researching, writing and blogging on climate change, particularly how to support people through climate loss and trauma. I had such a wonderful, warm and honest chat with Ro about grief and loss and climate change, but we spent as much time laughing as talking seriously. Most memorably for me, we talked about how to bring emotion to the very heart of talking, not just about climate change, but what to do about it. As always, if you hear this noise, it tells you that something may have been said in conversation, which we put a little bit more information about in the show notes. So you don't have to worry about that thing you just heard. You can go back and check it later. And one small thing before we start, Rose Audio isn't the best. There's a bit of hiss on the line. I've tried my darndest to get rid of it. I even used a thing called an isotope. Fixed it a bit. It's not horrific. And actually, you'll get used to it pretty soon, I hope. I started by asking Ro about grief itself. What even is it? Your brain on climate. Grief is the word we use for all of the emotions that we experience when we suffer some kind of loss. And we usually talk about the big losses that people suffer. And that's what comes my way as a psychotherapist. The feelings people have when somebody dies, for example. Or when some major loss happens, which might be, for instance, to do with your health, something which means that you can't do the things you used to be able to do. Well, your house and burns down or your house like burn, that. Your, your house yeah. burns down, you yeah. lose your job, you're made redundant, you don't get into the university you wanted to go to. These are all losses. And there's a kind of a phrase which people sometimes use about the, the lesser losses of life as being life's little rehearsals for the big losses that will inevitably come because you go through a similar kind of process 
with any loss from something which could be tiny. Perhaps you perhaps you break a favorite plate and it's oh, gone. Yeah. And that's that's a lot yeah. that's a loss. Or um you get ill just before a holiday and you can't go. That's or, a loss. Or, or when is this why we give pets to children or we let kids have pets because when little budgie gets squished by bin lorry we can process it and that's a way of kind of building up resilience to the big inevitable tragedy awfulness of later life right yes i think that's right and so of course how those losses are dealt with in childhood actually has a profound effect on how we how we meet them later in life when they're more profound and more serious and more and more difficult so if when little budgie got <laughs> squashed by the bin lorry um your mum said oh it's only a budgie it doesn't matter or no use crying over spilt milk come on we'll buy you another one or something like that you will not have really learned how to deal with the loss you will have learned how to suppress the feelings that you had over that over that loss so in childhood we can learn to deal with that loss very well or very badly so in your example if your mum or dad says oh that's just really sad I know you're going to miss Budgie um, and allows you to cry allows you to ask questions about well what's happened to Budgie where's Budgie gone does Budgie go to heaven does Budgie you know well you know and you have to kind of explain your whole as an adult to your child you need to explain in an age-appropriate way what you believe about what's happened to Budgie now Budgie's dead Hmm. Um, Budgie hasn't just been scraped off the tarmac and put in the bin lorry He's gone to a better place. Well, if that's what you believe, if that's if that's if that's the nature of your belief, that's fine. But if, if, if the nature of your belief is that Budgie, um, Budgie has had his life, his life's come to an end. It's very sad because it didn't last as long as we'd hoped, um, and now he's going to be lying in the ground where we've where we've put him, and we'll remember him and all the rest of it. Whatever it is that you your belief systems lead you to say, then as long as you take the time and take the time to express that and take the time to comfort your child and to allow your child to gradually separate from budgie because what happens when we lose somebody is that they are in our lives in a very profound way we're attached to that person or to that creature or to that plate that got broken or to the idea of the holiday that we didn't go on we have a we have an emotional attachment to that we have to separate from that. We have to gradually be able to let that go. And that's the process of grieving, is the, is the letting go of, of that person, of that idea, of that hope for the future, whatever it is. We have to find a way of letting go of it. And we, may, we have to accept that our life is going to change with a profound loss. Your life will change and you have to be able to believe that life will continue and that life may be worth something however deeply it's changed by what you've by what you've experienced and i think it's that it's that process which is a slow one and which needs a lot of support and a lot of space for the expression of feeling that is critical in grief and so it doesn't mean that you forget the person you've lost 
you will often talk about them in all kinds of ways. They will come back into your thoughts constantly. I know my mum's dead, my dad's dead. I think about them probably every day at some point, but I don't think about them with that kind of sense of overwhelming disbelief or horror or pain. I think about them in memory. I talk about them. And that's the process that you are that you go through. So the place that you want to get to is at the is the other side of grief, a place where life still has meaning despite the loss. And of course some for some people that's incredibly difficult. And sometimes it doesn't happen. People turn away from that process of mourning and they don't grieve. They never quite change the story, right? Because I'm struck by the emotional connection that we have to a plate or a budgie or your mum and dad. is a, a kind of story that we have about the world and about ourselves that has them in it and me in it and the idea of them and the idea of me somehow being connected. And there's a little bit of my story about the universe makes sense because it's got a plate or a budgie or my mum and dad in it and then when plate and budgie or mum and dad or my holiday aren't there there's a kind of rupture in what I took to be the way the world works right yes I think I yes I think that's right and so it's it could be a time where you feel very insecure you can feel very unsafe you can feel that nothing makes sense you can feel that life life doesn't have any meaning anymore um I mean, sometimes in order to protect yourself, you will just say it's not true. And this is very often people's first reaction to hearing about a death. You say, it can't be true. Dad's not mm. dead. Dad's, I spoke to him yesterday. It was a very common thing for people to say. I remember saying it when my, when my father died. I said, but I spoke to him yesterday. He mm. can't be dead. It's, you can't let it in. And, so, and there's a protective function about that. So at first you don't let it in. Or, you, you know, you say... Someone says to me, well, you didn't get into the university of your choice. And you say, but surely I did. I must have done. (laughs) I think you'll find I did. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I think you'll find you didn't, son. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And so so gradually, first of all, you begin to accept the fact intellectually in your head. You say, okay, that letter does say you didn't get the grades you needed. It does say that. And then you'll, or sometimes you'll find that somebody goes through a process of denying that, that truth emotionally. Um, they'll say, didn't want to go there anyway. Never wanted to go to Oxford. Dump of a place. So they'll deny the death. <laughs> well, I, 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 would have, I was about to reject them, actually. It's just as well. It's just as well. Yeah. Exactly. Or, or, you, or you say, didn't like Budgie. Budgie was always a pain in the neck. Budgie, Budgie never... Never sang well, and so you. <laughs> so but sometimes you will deny, you know. You so you will sometimes find it very hard to really accept how very, very deeply upset you are about are about something. You'll push it to one side. Would you say that we are, as a society, then not good? I guess we're talking about, yeah, we're in Britain, we're in, you know, in the UK, but in Western society, or maybe in general, that we're just, we don't really 
understand how to deal with grief? Or is that too much of a generalisation? It is a generalisation. I think that um, the big experiences of death are less common now than they were 100 years ago because infectious diseases have come under control to a large extent in, in, in the UK. Although, of course, in the last 18 months, we've seen what it feels like when infectious disease is rampant. But I think, so I think in some ways, maybe you experience death less often as a young person growing up. So that's that's certainly true. And some people are bad at dealing with it, with it and some people are much better at dealing with it. There are people who will come round and who will tell you what to do and, you know, help you and support you. And there are people who are ter- who themselves are, ter- are terrified. And all of us within us have different capacities for dealing with, us, with it, as we were talking about earlier. If you've learned to deal with small losses, you may have learned better about how to express your feelings and how to turn to others when you need help. And um, so those things, I think, can, can make a difference. But the other thing that makes a difference is that certain losses have certain rituals attached to them and other losses have no rituals attached to them. So that when there's a death, there are certain things that are done. So people come round, um, there's a funeral, there's a form that the funeral goes goes through. People send, people send cards, people tell you how much... Um, you they they cared for the person who's gone mm. um they you know they write condolence letters and and so on and so forth so there and are you're allowed rituals. you're allowed that kind of space as well aren't you like people people in general are nice to you and your boss yes. will give you time off work and people check in on you and see how you're going less so when the budget gets squashed by a bin lorry and not at all when you ruin your favorite plates but yeah we that in all those different ways right we we understand it's important yes but yeah. not with everything. Not with ev- not not with everything. And when losses start to occur, for which there are not clear pathways, uh, it's much more likely that somebody will move into a much more defensive position. Will find it much more much harder to go through this painful process of readjusting their whole life to the new to the new reality the reality that is going to be life without my husband life without my father life without my mother life without going to the university of my choice and so i think that that's um sometimes when people run into difficulties because they experience losses that aren't seen as losses. I heard someone on another podcast say that they thought people, when your cat or dog dies, whether you're an adult or not, that you should have time off work. You should be allowed time off work for that in the same way as you would be when a family member dies. And this idea that, uh, oh, it's just a cat, it's just a dog, I'll be all right. We kind of, we're, we're culturally in that example, sort of forcing ourselves not to feel something or to do without a, a sense of ritual that we would have for something else. We're kind of suppressing something. And I know it, it is, even as I'm saying this, I'm thinking, oh, that's a silly thing to say, but it kind of isn't, right? It's kind of making space for that emotional reaction that you have. When my cat died, few years ago i was gutted about it but i didn't get time off work yeah. would you have liked time off work i'd always like time off work right <laughs> um, <laughs> i don't know i certainly i think would have liked a sense i was upset that day you know and i worked with some nice people and colleagues were nice about it but 
I didn't really feel like I could talk about it. And I, I, if I'd have said, oh, I can't go and do that important thing because I'm gutted, people would have said, you're off your head, you know. So that's an interesting example, isn't it? Being very upset and wishing really that it had been, it had been easier for people to um, give you a bit more space because what I imagine happened was that after a while with your with your cat, you began to you began to separate yourself from the cat. You began, became able to look back on your life with the cat and what the cat had meant to you and the the interesting and funny things that your cat had done. And that probably began to develop stories that you would always tell when cats are mentioned in a conversation about your particular cat and what mm-hmm. it would do. And um, you begin to feel easier that the cat now has a different place in your life. And you might even begin to feel ready to get a new cat or to think about, you know, whether that was possible. And it's that slow process of detaching yourself and coming to feel that you can still find meaning where it's different. And there's always a place in your mind, in your memory for that cat, even if you've got another one. Or a dog. Um, <laughs> or a <laughs> And I'll be honest with you, like I've, I've worked on climate for 20 years and I've heard people talk about climate grief the grieving for what we are losing through climate change. And I don't know if I ever really thought it was a thing until this year, funnily enough, when I two things happened really close together. So in the summer, there were massive forest fires. I mean, I'm recording this in August. As far as I know, they have continued to be massive forest fires, um, including that really apocalyptic image that you must have seen of the ferry full of people being taken away from the greek island the whole north of which was on fire and this a really sort of dystopian image of a future in which people have to flee the land and they are now the land is no longer safe and i've been to greece when i was a kid and i remember thinking oh that's maybe that's gone now that you know that idea of what that was like is gone and then i watched another program where somebody was in the south of italy and they were talking about all the amazing things and i thought well maybe it would just be too hot to go and see those things. And a real sense, I think, for the first time that the world's changed, isn't it? And it's not coming back. And the way that I used to think about the world has changed. So, yeah, I think maybe I do think it is a thing, but is it grief that I'm feeling there or something else? What you, the thing which you're describing is at that moment, I think, is shock. And that's often the first stage of grief. Is, is shock, is that moment mm. where you've been saying, it's not really happening, and then you're actually having to say, no, it has happened. Mm. It has happened. And one of the distinctions which psychoanalysis makes, psychoanalysis makes is between the state of denial, where you're in that state of shock and you're saying, it hasn't happened, and a state which they call disavowal, which is where you permanently put your knowledge of what is true in one box 
and you keep it there and you don't look at it again and you carry on with life as normal. And that, I think, is very common in relation to climate change, where people say, yeah, 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 I know it's, I know it's happening. And then they pick up the phone and they book their next flight for their holiday in Thailand. And so these, there's this kind of disconnect between things. But I think what you're describing experiencing is actually that first stage of, no, this really has gone. And I think that for a long time with climate change, because its time scale is big, the sense of the loss was always about anticipatory, anticipatory loss. So there were losses which were there for the future and needed to be prepared right. for. Abs- theoretical abstract loss, right? Yes. I mean, I think that one of the things is that when we talk about climate change and loss and grief, we have to look at the different kinds of loss that are involved because they are uh, they work differently. So the loss which you were, you've suddenly come up against is there's not going to be holidays in Greece in the summer anymore. It's gone. It's finished because there are going to be forest fires, because the Mediterranean is now going to be so hot that I won't want to go. And, you know, leave, and also I probably shouldn't ever fly again either. You, you know, that's the, other, that's the other yeah, thing going on right. in my head. Not that I did a lot of that anyway. I should note in case anyone writes and complains at me. But so, so you're in that stage of just beginning to say the world really has changed and certain things have gone and have probably gone forever and are not coming back and what I would imagine is going likely to happen next is that one of the probably very strong feelings you will have is anger at everybody who let this happen including me right like you know it has sort of been my job for the last 20 years to stop this happening and I have failed it's a good job I've never been on performance related pay um but I think also you know I'd known I have sort of known about this in various ways for years but it feels like only in recent years has it really kind of hit me about what's happening yeah it's very I think it's often very very, it's often very difficult for people to really go through these sorts of processes when it doesn't have that doesn't quite have that re- quite have that reality and i think that there are all sorts of ways in which the the losses of of, of climate change um some of them have been coming for a long time but some of them again they hit people much much harder now and i think that in the past I would have said that there were losses that people were refusing to face which if they had faced them 20 years ago as you're describing um, some of these subsequent losses would not be here so it's rather like you know if you'd faced the loss of um, having a fun time with your friends when you were 14 and 15 you would not now be facing the loss of your university place at Oxford (laughs) because you'd have done the work and you'd have got there so there's a lot lot of truth in that yeah so so if you hadn't been out partying you'd 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 have got the grades you wanted so you'd have faced one loss in order to avoid another loss and one of the things which I think I found very I found very difficult many years ago was that people needed to face 
the loss, a, a certain kind of loss about the way their lives needed to change. And so we've been saying in the environmental movement for many years that it's not sustainable to fly. It's not sustainable to eat meat. It's not sustainable to heat your house to 30 degrees and wander around in pyjamas and forget about the insulation. These things, and, and there's a kind of loss involved in all of that, because if you're saying you can't fly on your holidays anymore, um, then you've got to work out what your life's going to be like without that. And one of the difficult things is that because governments didn't take the action which said, this loss is happening and it's happening to you now and it's happening to all of us now, we're not going to fly on our holidays anymore and we're only going to be allowed to eat X amount of meat um, a month or whatever we're going to ration it people would have had to face those losses if the oil wells had all been capped 20 years ago if the coal industry had been closed down 20 years ago we would all have been in a position where we had to face those losses rather than facing them voluntarily and because one of the reactions one of the grief reactions is anger of course, a lot of governments don't want to, um, don't want to, don't want to do it. So there's a lot, that, a lot of loss that has been stacking up because people have been have refused to face the losses that they should have faced decades ago, um, in order to stop these catastrophic losses now. Your brain, your brain, your brain on climate. climate, climate, climate. So let's talk a bit about then strategies for dealing with firstly recognizing climate grief and then dealing with it in a way which makes the work that people are doing on climate change more useful. So what is uh, what something that's always struck me, I think, about climate is you get two stories that don't seem to fit together somehow. You get stories that on the one hand are saying, look, everything's on fire, everything's buggered, act now, it's going to get more buggered, do something about it. And you get these very kind of emotive stories, polar bears falling into the sea or you know, bad things like that. And then the solutions always seem a little bit like, and here's a technical thing that we can do, or here's a small thing you can do in your life. And there's, there's somewhere in the middle of that, you, you've primed everyone to feel loss and anger and then the thing you get them to do just doesn't feel like it speaks to that somehow so is am i right about that does that make any sense i know i'm right about it because i nicked it from something you wrote (laughs) (laughs) well i think i I think i think it is i think that when you talk to people about something big being wrong you have to ask them to do something big Hmm. in response and i think that this has been one of the difficulties that people have said, well, um, we've all got to do our bit, and our bit turns out to be putting our our recycling in the in the correct bin. Yeah. And um, and then and then you find people coming up to you saying, well, I I really care about the environment. I do all my recycling, and I'm going, no, this doesn't this doesn't work like this. So I think that we have to be saying to people. Our lives need to change in big ways. These big things, these, these difficult things are happening. Our lives are going to have to change. This is probably very upsetting to you to hear this. 
how do you feel? And we have to start by asking people how they feel when they hear that um, this place that they used to go on holiday to in Greece is now ashes. How like do- we would, like we would if we were giving them, or they had just had bad news about yeah. their family or their work. Yeah. Same exactly. sort of thing, right? You wouldn't Same. you wouldn't go, oh, no, you really need to do something because you've just had a terrible trauma. Um, I suggest you eat this biscuit. You wouldn't do that kind of thing. Exactly. You'd, give some, you'd give them something to do that was concomitant, right? But first of all, you'd say, are you all right? Do you want to talk about it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. And I think that the, you know, the impulse to um, turn away and sort of offer, offer some, some, some little some little thing is is quite common you know the way people people always bring food when somebody dies and it's actually very helpful and it's very nice to be offered it but you and you know that this is a gesture which says i care about you but it doesn't it doesn't um bring person back and I think it's acknowledging that, that things have got to change. Things have absolutely got to change in very big ways. And that people need to need time to, to absorb that, to think about it, to say, well, I'm not going to be able to have a holiday in Thailand whenever I choose. I'm not going to um, be able eat, to. Eat meat three times a day, every day. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It, it's 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 saying we need you to do something big, and we need you to do everything that you can. It's not just you don't you don't just have to do one thing. You can't choose. I mean, there's still lots of people who go around saying, "Well, um, we've got to be we've got to give people a choice of what they do." The answer is no. They've got to do everything. Everybody's got to do everything. <laughs> you've got to write your MP. You've got to. Um, you know, you've, you've got to object to everything happening in your local community. You've got to join whatever group gives you joy and pleasure to join because it's growing vegetables or it's planting trees or it's doing whatever it is. You've got to talk to everybody you, you, you can manage to talk to and listen to how they feel. You've got to do everything in a way as you would if you were the chief support to somebody who had just lost somebody very, very dear to them. That's your task, in a way, is to look at this as if you are trying to help others through the biggest loss of their life. And the difficulty with that, of course, is that you are also suffering an enormous loss yourself. And when you are in the early stages of that, when you're feeling shock and anger and disbelief, you're not actually in a good place to support others so what you've got is lots of people kind of go ah this is dreadful i can't cope i'm so angry i'm so i'm so shocked i'm so frightened and that has a um a kind of very difficult effect i think on anybody you speak to when you're in that state because what you communicate is not um we need to act, we need to work, we need to do something together. You're communicating, I'm in a terrible emotional state, help me. So there's a lot of very difficult things happening emotionally when people actually first begin to take in the truth, as you're you're describing, in an emotional way. It's very important to take it in an emotional way because it's out of that that we act. We don't act when we know something intellectually. 
We act when we know emotionally and physically and in terms of our values and everything that matters to us. That's when we act. But what about sort of culturally for the millions and millions, I would say the vast majority of people who are not even really engaging with it at all? Um, What might tactics be for, I don't know, you don't want to... Do you need to make people grieve more generally? Is that something we need to do? How do we? How do we? How do you? How do you take that analogy to a bigger level for people for whom the patient is not dead yet, and indeed the patient hasn't even gone to hospital yet? How do you right, do that? Right. So, I think one of the things is that um, although it's only in their imagination that the patient hasn't gone to hospital, hmm. that's that's the crux of it. The patient has gone to hospital. The they just have. They've just lost touch with that person and didn't realise they were ill, right? I think when you raise the climate issue with, 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 with somebody, I think that there's always two aspects to it, which I talk about a lot. One is the, the content. What are we going to say about, about what's happening? And what else is going on in this interaction? This is the process of the conversation. This is where the feelings lie. This is where um, people's defences begin to come up. And so in any conversation that you have about climate change, you know, if you happen to be at the school gate and talking to another parent, for example, and you say, oh, God, did you see what's happening in Greece? I was on holiday only, only mm. two years ago. And um, the person you're talking to says, oh, well, you know, we can always go somewhere else. We can always go to Spain. <laughs> North of Scotland should North be all right. Yeah. Green, Greenland. Greenland would be a lot less cold. They say, now, so we they, go. If they kind of, they, they, they shift, they change the subject, mm. then what, what, what happens, what you need to, in a sense to do is to start to say perhaps, I think this, I think this subject's making you feel a bit uncomfortable or... You might, you might return to your feelings and say, I've been really upset about this. You might mm-hmm. try to engage their sympathy for you, which is by saying, I've actually been really upset about this. And you wait for them to say, oh, I'm sorry, why? Or you say, um, I think it's making, me, making you really uncomfortable talking about this. And you hope that they'll say, yeah, I really hate to think about it. And then you can say, well, actually, I hate thinking about it too, but I've come to realise that I'm going to have to think about it. Um, And then you're in a place where you can begin to say, maybe we could talk about this and find ways of talking about it that don't make us feel so bad or talk about how we can get past this or talk about what we might do. Because very often behind people's defensive um, reactions are the feelings that they're, they're, they're too small to make a difference, is it so frightening they'd rather not think about mm. it, that they, they've got so much else going on in their lives that is just more immediate, it's just one more thing. And so I think it's by focusing on that process of the conversation that you begin to open it up a bit. And, and I think at a, you know, at a much bigger level, at a, at a sort of, you know, if you're a politician, you've got a, you've got a platform to speak from, then again, I think it's that acknowledgement of the feelings, the acknowledgement of the grief, the acknowledgement that what you're saying to people is really, really difficult. 
really matters. And I think you can see this at the moment in the difference between the ways in which a politician who is good at this speaks, like Jacinda Ardern or Mark Drakeford, um, to give an example nearer home, who acknowledges how difficult the things are that they're asking people to do. And a politician like Boris Johnson, who is really just looking for the next opportunity to be allowed to crack a joke um, and can't keep a serious expression on his face for two seconds, you can see that there is a way of embodying emotional relatedness into, into public speech as well. So that it's not about facts and it's not about... Um, what I want you to do. It's about feeling. At the time of recording this, there's a lot of debate. I hope this is not still going on by the time you listen, but it might be, about the costs of climate action in the UK. And there's a rising chorus of, at the moment, you know, fairly small opposition, but the front pages of some newspapers starting to say it'll cost too much to act on climate change, you know, in the same week as we've seen the warnings about climate change. And I think a lot of campaigners and a lot of responses to that are missing the point because they're making a kind of economic argument in response to that argument. They're saying, no, no, but the economic costs of action are much uh, gr- uh, much lower than if we don't act or yes but the costs are not that great if you consider advances and, and the point is the argument is one of feeling whether it's right or wrong that is being used against this the argument is i don't feel like this is something i want to do i'm upset about it i think climate action is bad i think it threatens me i think etc 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 or it offends my political sensibilities and unless we respond with a similarly emotional response emotional in a sort of constructive useful sense that has feeling under it we're not going to get anywhere going to perpetually lose you'd have thought people would have learned that from brexit which is what happened there right irrespective of whether or not you thought leaving the eu was the right thing to do or not the leave campaign had the best emotions behind them they had the best feeling you know they did and i think one of the things which we can think about is that when people say oh it's it, it's too much we can't we can't we can't afford it or they say our way of life is being attacked i think again if you focus if you focus on that emotion, you say someone is someone is feeling attacked. Someone is, um, you know, feeling oppressed in this. Someone is feeling um, desperately, desperately, desperately upset. Um, then you can begin to ask, well, is the person who's being labelled as being upset really the one who's upset? Or what is it that you're upset about? Because one of the things that happens with emotions when they're not actually being thought through and processed and... Um, properly um, directed is that you feel angry about things which are not the real cause of your anger or you feel um, threatened by things which are not the real threat. And I think um, trying um, trying to unpick that, trying to acknowledge that people feel threatened, feel frightened, feel angry, feel, feel fearful that something's going to be asked of them which they can't manage to do or which because they're selfish gits they don't want to do um that for me includes 
an awful lot of the current ruling class, but you know that's just me. But you can, um, but you can. Th- I mean, I agree with you. But you can, you can think that someone is a selfish git while still also saying, but they are upset about something, yes. and yes. you're not, you're not going to persuade them not to be upset about something by giving them a twenty-page economic report. That's not what's happening here, right? Yes. I think, I think that, I think, I think that's right. I think that's right. And so I think, um, in a sense, trying to bring some emotional sophistication into campaigning is actually very important. Because I think if you look back at the speeches of people who have been effective political leaders, you will always see that there are they are speaking truthfully about emotion. They're not manipulating it, which is what the Brexit campaign did. They're not manipulating emotion. They're speaking truthfully about emotion. So if you look at the speeches of Martin Luther King, who was an incredible orator, and he could, you know, he could catch an audience. But what he said was truthful, which um, the speeches which the Brexit campaign made were not truthful factually, they were not truthful emotionally, because they were manipulating other people's emotions. Martin Luther King was speaking from his heart. And I think that speaking from your heart and identifying with other people, speaking empathically from the heart, is is a very, very powerful thing to do. So that was my chat with Roe. And there's something really profound under there that I've been thinking about ever since. That discussion we had at the end about the disconnect between, on the one hand, the horrible awfulness of climate change and, you know, that horrible awfulness being evoked in talking to us about it. The planet is going to burn, etc, etc, etc. And then on the other hand, this kind of unsatisfactory and quite cold set of things we're often told are the solution. Technical things, consumery things, buy this, do this other thing and carry on living your life. And somewhere the emotion that's galvanised by the former, that sort of internal sense of loss and panic is, is cauterised. But I think we need it. We need that emotion because climate change is a really, really emotional thing. I've had my fair share of climate emotion over the years, but only recently, like I said to Rose, it started to feel a bit like grief. Something is lost, it's being lost, it's burning, it's going away, and I haven't quite processed it, and I need to. And what I feel that I need to come after that isn't just being told to change my light bulbs, just like it wouldn't be after a parent died to be told I just need to make a small tweak to my lifestyle and everything will be okay. And I think that sort of thing explains the rise in the power of the student climate strikers and Extinction Rebellion, because their campaigning is motivated by emotion. And their response to the loss of climate change that's already here is to pour that emotion and that passion into the fire and tenacity of campaigning for something to be done. I think we're scared of emotion in our technical world, particularly around climate change, you know. We're scared of grieving, of feeling loss and admitting to it. And maybe we are in our own lives too. But perhaps admitting it and sharing it with others is one of the most powerful forces we have as we try to get our head around what the climate emergency really means. That was episode two of Your Brain on Climate with Ro Randall. Thanks so much for listening. You can tell me what you thought of the show on Twitter at BrainClimate or email hello at yourbrainonclimate.com. Please, please, please leave a review on your podcast medium of choice if you enjoyed the show and spread the word. It all massively, massively helps. I'll be back next week with another chat about the interface of psychology and climate change, you lucky scamps. Until then, look after yourself and I'll speak to you very soon. Okay, bye. Bye.